veterinary medicine, as we talked about before, is very underrepresented. And this is where I can potentially channel this energy into, you know, making that change within this profession. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Hi, everyone. This is the last episode of Veterinary Vitals with me as your host. I'll be passing the baton to Audrea Wood, TVMA's new Media Coordinator. I want to thank you for listening. This experience has been so meaningful and rewarding. I've enjoyed every interview with my guests and felt honored to bring important topics to light, such as grief, postpartum depression, and other difficult subjects not often discussed in veterinary medicine. I would love to keep in touch with you. My email is in the show notes, dinagoldsteinstl at gmail.com. Please email me today so we can keep the conversation going. And you can stay tuned for my next project. And now on to this episode with my returning guest, Dr. Nicole Bruno. She appeared on the podcast last June in an episode titled, Being a Veterinarian of Color. At that time, the nation was reeling, and still is today, with racial unrest. People filled the streets demanding justice for George Floyd as well as an end to police brutality. Organizations looked inward and asked what can they do to create a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive space for all employees. Dr. Bruno has facilitated this shift at VetCorps, where she formed a DEI task force and has been doing external and internal programming to improve diversity efforts in veterinary medicine. Well, before putting in this work over the past year and after the airing of her episode in June, She and I sat down again over Zoom in July of 2020 to delve deeper into the intersection of diversity, race, and veterinary medicine. We talked about the importance of having difficult conversations related to this topic in order to instill real change. And while it's been nearly one year since she and I held this conversation, it's still just as timely and relevant. At the time, she was grieving the recent loss of her grandmother and coping with the current events in the summer of 2020. Here she is. My emotions tend to change daily. I think it's almost like when you're grieving a person, which I also am too, and I don't know if that's a component of it as well, but you know, when I'm looking at the news and, and seeing the current events, I, I have emotions ranging from frustration to fear, you know, fear for my husband, fear for my son, fear for their future, anxiety, you know, um, anger at times. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to sometimes separate them, you know, because it's just such a, a huge problem in this country. And, you know, while I'm, I'm glad that it's getting out there where more conversations are to be had, it's just so frustrating that we're still having them in the year 2020. You know, based on the history of this country, we should not be at this point still, but we are. And I think it's really, um, you know, our job right now to, and our responsibility to do the work to change and to change how we, how the future of this country progresses. It's just, it's, it's really our responsibility. Um, You know, I, 
like I said, depending on my emotions, I try to, I've been trying to process this by lots of praying, um, you know, taking time for myself to like sometimes just have some self-care, like just put it down, shut it off and just kind of be in my own thoughts. I really use my commutes to and from work sometimes to not even call anybody. Like I am really trying to like mentally get through this um, and emotionally get through this. And, you know, trying to focus on family time since we're not going anywhere. Um, but, you know, family time and, and I'm trying to channel all of the negative energy surrounding this and just trying to put it in a place of positivity, trying to implement the change that I want to see. And I have to look around me first and, you know, my family, sure, pouring it into my children and um, my profession, like veterinary medicine, as we talked about before, is very underrepresented. and you know, this is where I could potentially channel this energy into, you know, making that change within this profession. It's great that you have some strategies like that prayer, self-care. What does that entail, the self-care? Like you're taking moments to just be with yourself and check in with yourself. You know, like I said, sometimes with my commutes, um, you know, I, I usually use my commuting time to call friends and try to stay connected with them. Um, and sometimes I think that is self-care, like having, maintaining relationships with the people that love you and you love and know you. Um, but some days I, I know I need to just shut it off and I, you know, will actually just drive in silence and I'll, I'll pray, you know, I'll have conversations with God or I will just kind of talk out what I need to do or what I'm trying to accomplish, you know, just processing my own thoughts with things. Um, I've, I'm old now and I work out. And so I'm at night, like I'll take a hot shower or a bath, you know, and that's like my ritual to kind of, just like with children, you want to give them that hot bath before bedtime. Like I'll do that because I think like you need to like de-stress from the end of a long day. Um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, some, some weeks I can do more um, and others, I'm just trying to get to bed on time. Like sometimes that's all I need, just sleep, you know? Um, so, you know, just trying to be more intentional in this time because if you don't, then it can really eat you up. I have experienced taking um, Epsom salt baths and they're mm -hmm. the most relaxing thing. It actually makes a difference with Epsom salt than just without that. Um, yes. It just like completely relaxes your body. Um, but I'm just curious, have you had trouble sleeping? You know, um, some nights I have, not as many as I would have thought. When my grandmother passed away, there were more. Um, but right now, um, it's, it's every so often, like if I get up and, you know, like I said, I have young children. And so sometimes they wake up in the middle of the night and, um, Sometimes it's hard to get back into that sleep mode after them. So, but I'm always tired at night. I just, I keep myself busy enough that I'm usually exhausted at night. But, um, you know, if I end up having to wake up for some reason, sometimes it's harder to get back to sleep. Yeah. Going back to the veterinary profession, you talked about this a little bit, just feeling drained. So what would have been the challenges of like going about your daily life, but also having all of this weigh on you at, at the same time? For, for me, you know, I carry all of this on me, um, but 
when you go to work, it's like business as usual. You know, it's not something, you know, race relations, COVID is, everybody's talking about it, you know? And so that's easy to kind of get through. And, you know, when, when clients ask how things are, you know, I've in some cases divulged that my lost my grandmother and, you know, that allows us to kind of have a moment or they'll divulge some things that they're going through and it just kind of keeps a, a connection. But, um, you know, race has always been very taboo to discuss and so some of the things of just coming to work and being like it was hard to see George Floyd's murder you know it was hard that's not something that's discussed and um you know as a leader of the hospital I am at least able to have those conversations in my workplace you know I've checked in on a couple of my staff to just make sure that they're okay I tried to have a culturally diverse staff and so I made sure to pull them aside and let them know that it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it, when they ever, they're ready to talk, I'm, I'm here. Um, you know, and I've been vulnerable with them about some of my feeling, but that's because that's a, an environment that I, I made sure to create. And I have staff that are supportive of it. And we, we were able to share and be vulnerable with each other and learn from each other. Um, but this is not the case in every hospital. And even, you know, um, corporations, you know, a lot of hospitals are corporate owned and, you know, it's really important that this, this, these conversations and, and this culture of being able to talk about race relations and what we're going to do as a profession to, to help change the the atmosphere is important. Um, and so when I started to see that companies started to make statements and take a position about black lives matter movements, um, that felt good, but I, of course, looked inside, like, well, what's, what's the vet world saying? Mm-hmm. What's the, the, I put on all my hours into this profession. More I see my coworkers and more than I see my family many days. And, um, you know, so what, what's, our, what's our position? And when none was really taken, I, 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 felt, I felt uncomfortable. And I finally said, I'm tired of being uncomfortable. And I, you know, I made some calls and I started some emails and, you know, I let it be known that this, this matters and it matters to change the tone of veterinary medicine. And um, it's also helped me to have some of these conversations with colleagues to make them aware of what we all need to do to help change the course of this profession. Yeah, I mean, we've been forced to, quote unquote, wear an armor. Like, I feel like I have to, like, come to work and just kind of mask what's going on around me with really, with regards to race. You know, again, there's other things that you can be vulnerable about, like, you know, people losing a loved one or just the frustrations of COVID and, and you know, trying to make my staff safe and all of that. Like, people can understand that because we're all in this, but not everybody's a black person or brown person and understands that fight. And so it's like, we have to, you know, kind of just wear the armor and act like everything is okay and not bring attention to this topic because that's not what's popular. Like that's not what's current events is in the world of veterinary medicine. And that's what, it, what I'm saying is the problem. And because we're at a point now where we're just tired of this, just, lack of change it's it's something has to be done and so the conversations have to start in order for change to come I I think that everybody has a way of processing this you know some people will take it's not it's not our job I do think that it is the role 
of everyone, but specifically, you know, white people who are having a hard time understanding this movement and why this matters to self-reflect, to actually like take a look at themselves and, and, and actually educate. There are so many resources right now that you can, you know, whether you want to read, whether you want to watch something on TV, you know, there are tons of resources that you can find to help you understand the history of systemic racism in this country and also how to be a better ally for people of color and what you can do. You know, we all have strengths and everybody has to find what their strength is and what they're going to do. I mean, even just changing five things in your life have a trickle effect and can also impact other people. Having these conversations with family, you know, um, making sure that you expose your children to history other than just American history, like actually looking at the plights of what other, you know, successful black and brown people have done. It's, it's, it's the job of yourself to, to educate. Um, it's like, I can't read my entire life story to you or the life story of my husband, just so that you can understand. You have to still understand that this has been a institutionalized problem and, you know, how it's affected people. And if you know that person, maybe you'll understand it and maybe you'll be more open to it. But it is also, it's very draining to share these thoughts, to share these feelings. You know, even leading up to this podcast and the follow-up, like I wanted to make sure that I did it justice because this, this is so sensitive for me and for so many people that I know, my family. And I'm willing to put myself out there if this is going to help change the tone of this profession. Do you know how systemic racism has impacted the veterinary medicine profession? Just in general, like the barriers to get into veterinary school, lack of exposure, you know, for, for children of color, um, op- lack of opportunity, you know, um, they, as I mentioned, growing up in a city, I, I didn't have access to farm animal. You know, I went away to college into the South in order to get some experience with that, but that chose me leaving out of, you know, my comfort zone. It wasn't something I had to, that was just, I had access to. And I'm not saying anybody, like a white person that grew up in Queens, New York, didn't have, you know, the same limitations as me. But in general, when you have, um, children who are dealing, I had a mom who was very supportive and, and drove me out, but you have some that are, don't have that support system. So are not able to be, have those experiences because they don't have a way to get to them. You know, so mentorship matters, like being able to expose children who may not have the means to have, to get the exposure that others can get. Um, you know, as far as also with vets, veterinary school education, I mean, if your parents are immigrants or, you know, your first generational college graduate, like, money isn't there for you to just have $300,000 to go to vet school, you know? And so you factor in the loans that you will accrue and then what our salary is. And, and sometimes that is also a deterrent, you know, um, as to, you don't want to have the American dream, have to have the American debt, you know? And right. so it's, it's hard, but the reality is, is that we have been now for people of color, it's, we've been groomed to know you got to go to school in order to, to, to make it, you got to have a career, you got to get your education. And so we are all going to school. And I, and I feel like statistically, they said that African-American women are enrolled in higher numbers, you know, than other races in, in college. But, you know, then you come out with debt, 
you know, not everybody gets a free ride to school, um, or, you know, those academic scholarships or sports scholarships. So it just kind of creates a, a, the same gap. Now we have the education, but now we have debt. So that limits us in what we can do, you know, um, just because we got to factor that in before buying a house or starting a family or, you know, opening up a business. It can be done, but it's got to be done smart. And a lot of times it does take a community. I mean, I see that now because, you know, I live here in Texas away from my immediate family and I do have so many good friends and I have family here that are able to help me in an emergency. But, you know, there's power in having that village. Um, and I know as the kids get older, I'm going to want them to have as many opportunities as they can to play sports and potentially have an after school job and have an intentional after school job. Like my mom, when I first told her I wanted to be a vet at 12, well, when it was time to work and have my first job, my mom encouraged me to find a job that would get me experience even in the medical profession. Um, and so I worked in a, a pharmacy, a local pharmacy, um, as opposed to working in the gap, which is what I really wanted to do. So I could get a discount <laughs> on clothing, but you know, I, my mom was like, no, you know, and then on top of it, it was a local pharmacy. So it was easy for me to get there and do my shifts because I could walk there. Whereas, you know, if I worked at the gap, there would have to be a bus, a train, something involved in getting there. And so, um, but yes, if the more that you can get that exposure from a young age, it feeds you into what ultimately you want to do. I mean, I still think that I, I, was meant to be in medicine, but I wonder, you know, if I had gotten that position in gap, would it, that, would that, would that have changed my path? You know, would I have looked in fashion or would I have looked at, re you know, retail and climbing that ladder? I mean, how what you expose your children to from a young age, you really got to feed off of what their interests are. Um, and that's, that's just with anything. But, you know, especially if in this profession, because of the fact that you really have to have a stellar resume going into vet school, the earlier you can get that experience and exposure, the better. So there's another great veterinary podcast out there by the AVMA, My Veterinary Life. And I spoke with the co-host um, in one of the previous episodes was Veterinary Vitals. And they just put out an episode about diversity and inclusion. One of the guests, Dr. Andrea Gentry Apple, she's an assistant professor at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Um, so she said after earning her DVM at North Carolina State College, she wanted to do her large animal rotating internship at Tuskegee because she didn't also want to deal with being just one of few people of color in a class. So it, she just got drained. She didn't want to think about the fact that she's a minority, just like an extra layer. So going to Tuskegee was liberating for her. So can you relate to Dr. Gentry's experience of the exhaustion of being one of few in a room? I mean, I feel like we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't have, you know, because again, her same exact experience, but you know, I, I um, had a chance to listen to her as a panel speaker this past weekend. So I, I know that she went to um, North Carolina A&T for you know, the under, for undergrad, which is HBCU. And so she had kind of the same exposure as HBCU and then going to a predominantly white institution for vet school. So like I had mentioned in my, the previous podcast, I was very lucky that I had a very diverse class. So I didn't, I don't think I was as emotionally drained coming out of vet school um, as maybe she was, yeah. but I can 
relate to it because when I did my internship, I was the only person of color again. And, you know, I think it helped me be a little bit okay because I took a, I did a private practice internship and I was home in New York. So I had outlets to kind of not feel so isolated. But, you know, as we just get through this career more, I mean, I've been practicing now for 14 years and I'm usually the only doctor of color in the hospital that I work at. Um, usually the only, I'm, a, I'm in a leadership role in my company. And when we go to our regional meetings, I am the only person of color in that room. And it gets exhausting for that. So I, I could totally relate to that of just, you know, being emotionally drained. And I'm sure, you know, having gone to Tuskegee for undergrad, like that was probably very liberating to see and learn from faculty that look like you you know, and you can see the role that you want to be. And then, you know, now that she's back to teaching, she's able to help shift and shift minds of future veterinarians. And so, um, you know, I definitely can see her point on that. And it is something that even I am working on within my own company to try to change because it, it is exhausting at times. And I just thought it was so great to hear her perspective. I think that the AVMA's podcast, it's so wonderful that they're providing a platform because that's not something I ever thought about. Well, I'm not a veterinarian, but just the idea of choosing to go to be in an environment where you're not focused on, oh, I'm only one of few, but you're able to just focus on your studies. That is just very interesting to me. Well, I think another point to make is, is that a lot of times, you know, we already know that this profession is 92% white. I think the recent studies may have shown a, a slight change in that number. She's right. There was a change in this number. According to the United States Census Bureau, in 2019, 89% of veterinarians in the U.S. were white. Yet the percentage of white individuals in the overall workforce is 61%. And while Black people make up 12% of the workforce, not even 2% of veterinarians are Black. However, if we take a look at veterinary schools in the class of 2020, the numbers are promising in terms of diversity. According to the Student Diversity Data Report by the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges, AAVMC for short, approximately 76% of students in veterinary school were white, 3% were Black, 4% were multiracial, 5.5% were Asian, and 7.5% are Latinx. This means the profession will begin to see a subtle shift in the next few years, but still has a ways to go. But um, we're still more than 50 or 60% white. Um, and so we already know that going in. So I think a lot of, um, I've been having a lot of conversations with vet students and even pre-vet students and, you know, their point of view is now they're looking at, well, what schools are going to be more open and, and ex understanding and accepting the, of them, you know, um, across the board, I've spoken to students from different veterinary colleges and they're not feeling, you know, that level of acceptance, especially in the, in the wake of what's been going on, you know, in the racial undertone of our country, that they're not getting that support. There is a lack of curriculum with regards to, to racial inequality. Um, and these, these are things that are important in this profession because when we graduate, we are not, we, we serve the community and the community that we serve is not 92% white, 
you know? And so it's very important that we have an understanding of the racial differences and being empathetic and, you know, trying to, to find language that is universal, that doesn't isolate people. I mean, how we interact with staff members. I mean, it's so important and that's why, it, and it has to come from before, you know, um, we're veterinarians. It, that's, that should be a part of curriculum. And I know a lot of students want to see that change. And some schools are, have, have programs and some schools have started those conversations, but in general, it's still lagging and not every school does it. And so I think that that's something that, you know, of course, Dr. Greenhill, who we talked about before, has been active in, in promoting and she's one of the main um, contributors to the AVMA podcast that are out there. Um, she's amazing. And she was been doing this for as long as even when I was in vet school, I knew of her name. So I have incredible respect for what she's done. Dr. Lisa Greenhill appeared on the 33rd episode of the podcast. It's titled Diversity Matters at U.S. Veterinary Colleges with AAVMC's Lisa Greenhill. Another episode to check out after this one. But she cannot do it alone. And so right now, there's been so much talk you know, because we are all tired of this and we're trying to do what we can to, you know, retain people in this profession because you can burn out if you feel alone or you may not even choose to enter it if you don't feel like you'll have the support that you need through the process. Veterinary school is hard. Yeah. It doesn't need to be harder because you don't feel like you are supported or that you matter to administration, to faculty. You know, um, and that was one of the greatest things about Tuskegee. You know, when I went there for undergrad, my my um, academic advisor, but he was also like the professor of animal science 101, Ralph Noble, Dr. Ralph Noble. Hmm. I mean, that man made my career at Tuskegee just amazing. Like, I loved him and, he, you know, and he cared. He cared so much about his students. And you, he didn't care that you, went to, you wanted to be a vet or if you wanted to stay and do an agricultural position. He just wanted to pour and give you all the opportunities you could in that program. And I, you know, and I treasure those times in, the, in his class and just the experience that I had at Tuskegee. But would I have received the same thing if I went to a predominantly white institution? Would I have been poured into? You know, and I'm, I'm saying that it isn't, and I'm not saying that at Cornell, that I didn't have professors that loved me and that I love too, and I still keep a relationship with outside of, you know, vet school, but it still matters to see it in a person that looks like you, a person that could be your dad, a person that could be your uncle, you know, egging you on, telling you, you can do this. And then seeing them in those roles and saying, I can do this when I'm, when I'm failing or frustrated, I can do this. Um, and if you can't see it in your faculty, then you have to have it in the, in your classmates, you know? And like I said, I was blessed to have diversity in my class. So if I didn't have it from the academic professor, I had it from Joya, Janice, Yvonne, Liara, you know, like Maria, those, that, that was my core. And so it matters and it, it, it takes administration at vet schools to realize that this problem will continue. And if they don't recognize that it's a problem, then that's why we're not having change yeah. because there's a lack of recognition. Yeah. Moving forward, like in the future, your hope for changes, like we talked about, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so I think over the past like three weeks, I've seen AVMA take a few steps. They created a web page devoted 
to resources. They even created another page for a book list, be better allies. But it just seems like associations and possibly veterinary schools are reflecting, looking at, okay, what are we doing and what can we do in the future to be more inclusive? So, you know, tiny steps, but what what is your hope moving forward on both a personal and professional level? Um, personally, I, you know, I think this time of COVID and just having to sit still and just kind of process has allowed me to really just be grateful for what I have and, you know, just be reflective and of my kid, you know, and pouring into my children and spending that time with them, realizing that how they will grow mature as adults, like this time frame, like how they're loved, how they're taught, how they're cared for will ultimately determine their future just as much as any schoolwork that they'll, that they will um, encounter. So I, I want to make sure that I, I put them in the right opportunities to be exposed, you know, to have friends of all backgrounds. It's one of the reasons why I chose to move to Houston to give them that cultural diversity. Um, so I want to I want to travel someday. So those are all, and that would be a way of influencing them culturally. Um, so that I mean, personally, I just want to kind of continue to stay sane in this COVID, you know, and racial tension climate that we're in, and you know, I want to make sure that I be the best wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, um, ally as possible. Like those are my personal goals to, to get through this moment. Um, you know, professionally, like I said, you know, the whole reason for us having these conversations and having more continued conversations in the future is to try to change this profession. I mean, I have wanted this veterinary medicine has basically been a majority of my life I'm going to be 40 this year and so I feel like I have to do what I can to to change what I what I can do and I've, I've been able to see what little changes on a local level like starting off with my hospital have done and so I feel like if we have better and bigger conversations we can start to increase the radius you know of how big we can you know make this and how and and how having conversations like this are the start of that, of making progress. I got some positive feedback from my corporation and, and we are going to be starting some initiatives and I'm looking forward to that work and seeing what we can do. But I hope that I can, and we can do something in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, you know, just a small thing that came out of that first episode that we had was, you told me that a pre-vet student, is that right? She, mm -hmm. she reached out to you on Instagram after she listened to the episode. <laughs> she did. She did. And, um, you know, she's local. And so um, I offered her, you know, to, to take the drive because she's in Austin. And so I offered her to take the drive to, to visit me. But, you know, as far as experience goes, you want to make sure that you have someplace where you can get continued hours from and build a relationship. And so just realistically, her living in Austin and me being outside of Houston isn't like ideal, but I connected her with my friend and boss colleague um, who is a practice leader in um, Austin, Texas. And so my hope is, is that they will develop a um, kind of some hours to allow her some exposure right now. It's harder with COVID, you know, so we're trying to be conscientious of that. Um, but yes, I've had just from some of the um, even little groups that they have on Facebook and GroupMe, you know, there's been a lot of groups of 
you know, pre-vet students that are in colleges that are local and Prairie View. And so I have offered to, you know, to allow them to come if they're willing to travel and also, you know, even be a guide, a mentor. I mean, right now, sometimes that's really what you need is somebody to kind of listen to where you're at and, and kind of offer you some advice. And I think the more I keep my ear, you know, kind of up to date with what's happening because it's very different from when I went to vet school, you know, even in the application process, but still just kind of showing them the ropes because some things haven't changed and a lot hasn't changed. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I can at least be a a mentor or point them to somebody who can answer those questions that I can't. It was just cool because the pre-vet student seemed like she really looked up to you. I appreciate that platform. And I realize that, you know, by me speaking and by me sharing my story, that there are people that are listening that have similar stories. And, you know, I hope that that can be of of an inspiration for them to know that it can be done. And there are going to be speed bumps and there are going to be even course deviations. And, but it's, it's the fight in you that will help you continue to keep moving forward. I mean, even just this, last year, um, things that I envisioned for myself have completely kind of taken a, ch- a turn um, just because of other things that have happened, you know? And so, um, but I think right now having these conversations is almost cathartic for me. It's very um, almost liberating to kind of get some of the emotions off and, and even forming allies and, and allowing people to see another point of view and ultimately help to do the work to to change it because everybody's going to have to do the work. We're going to need our allies. We can't do it alone. That was Dr. Nicole Bruno discussing the importance of having difficult conversations related to race, her experiences as a veterinarian of color, the barriers people of color face when beginning to enter the veterinary medicine profession, and why representation matters. And now she has other projects related to improving diversity in veterinary medicine up her sleeve. Stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed this episode and all of the previous episodes we've released since the launch of this podcast. Thank you again for listening. As I said, if you'd like to stay in touch, my email is in the show notes. Also, show season one some love by rating and writing review on Apple Podcasts today. Thank you again so much. Thank you.